Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.28, Braddock's March. With the French and Indian War now underway, Britain was reeling from a disastrous 1754. Beginning with the Jumonville Affair and Washington's decisive loss at Fort Necessity, followed by perhaps the more troubling surrender, the beginning of the war was off to an inauspicious start. Meanwhile, in Albany, delegates met with Iroquois officials to rebuild their increasingly strained relationship. Well, they did agree to preserve the all-important covenant chain. The Albany Congress was consumed by the self-serving actions of the individual colonies, primarily manifested through dubious land deals between both Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and the Iroquois. These land deals would leave long-lasting rifts between the groups. While in Albany, Benjamin Franklin had moved to create a more unified colonial structure with the broad strokes of a federalist system. This was, as discussed, not a move towards the independence of the colonies, but was rather an attempt to more fully incorporate the colonies into the greater overall empire. The plan of union ended up falling completely flat. Not a single colony agreed to ratify the plan, with the majority giving it little to no debate at all. The plan was seen as usurping too much power from the individual colonies, a power that the colonies had little interest in relinquishing. Even had the colonies been interested in the Albany Plan of Union, it would never fly back in London. Parliament had zero intention of allowing the colonies to unite to the degree that Franklin was proposing. At the moment, they needed some cooperation for the common defense of the colonies. However, beyond that, they were not interested in a more unified set of North American colonies. In the wake of the disastrous first half of 1754, the British appointed Edward Braddock to come to North America in order to take command of the military effort. William Johnson was named the sole British emissary to treat with the Iroquois. This week, we are going to pick up with our story as Braddock arrives to take control of the war effort and attempt to turn around the shaky start that it was off to. With the war being placed into the hands of Edward Braddock, the obvious question becomes, who is Edward Braddock? Braddock was born in 1695. Braddock's father, also named Edward, was a major general for the Coldstream Guard, a regiment of the British Army. Joining his father's company at the age of 15, the young Braddock was steadily promoted. By the time of King George's Wars, Braddock had reached the rank of lieutenant colonel. During the war, Braddock would see action in the Netherlands. In 1754, Braddock achieved the rank of Major General. Braddock arrived in Virginia on February the 19th, 1755, a few weeks ahead of his men. He was an interesting choice for the command, seen as how he really had very little actual battlefield leadership experience. Instead, what Braddock provided was a reliable political choice and was furthermore known to demand especially strict discipline. After the disasters of the previous year with Jumonville, and shortly thereafter at Fort Necessity, the hope was likely that somebody like Braddock could instill some discipline over the notoriously undisciplined provincials. Now, before we move forward, I want to take a second to make sure and define the term provincials, so we all know what we are dealing with. Provincials are simply the names given to units made up of colonists, as opposed to the British regulars. 
They're certainly not regulars, nor are they a standing army. They come and go as needed. Provincials took part in both Queen Anne's War and the War of Jenkins' Ear. Basically, during the 18th century, when we see an army of colonists go out and do something, we are going to be talking about provincials. Realistically, provincials are a long ways off from British regulars. Regulars see them as being terribly undisciplined and, during a firefight, they are just about as likely to flee as they are to fight. Likewise, and much to the annoyance of George Washington, provincial officers ranked lower than the regular officers. Hence the issue where a low-ranking British officer could often order around a higher-ranked provincial officer. George Washington is indeed a good example of a provincial, better disciplined than a group of rabble, but less so than the British regulars. One of the defining personality traits of Braddock was that he was wholly undeterred by internal colonial politics. They sent Braddock to the colonies with a clear mission. He had little interest in dealing with the internal squabbles that existed within the colonies. Immediately upon arrival, Braddock quickly planned a conference for April at Annapolis. He requested that the individual colonial governors attend so that he could make sure that they were all on the same page. The problem for Braddock is that his brash attitude did not exactly endear him to the colonial governors. While certainly there were some advantages to bringing in an outsider with no ties to colonial politics, it also left Braddock woefully exposed for dealing with provincial leadership. When the planned meeting occurred in the middle of April, Braddock made clear that he was not calling everybody together to form up some kind of a think tank, but rather he was bringing them in so that he could bark orders at them. The orders that Braddock barked were exceptionally complicated and were going to require a massive amount of resources. What Braddock promised was a series of four expeditions. The first part of the plan called for Admiral Edward Boscoin to be sent up to the St. Lawrence and block off the entrance to the river, up near the fortress of Louisbourg. The plan being that the blockade would prevent the French from resupplying Canada through the St. Lawrence River in anticipation of the coming ground campaign. William Shirley, the governor of Massachusetts that we met a few weeks ago, got a surprise promotion and quickly found himself named as the second in command over the overall mission. Shirley was, by all accounts, a smart and talented man, though it should be mentioned that he lacked any actual military experience. Shirley was put in charge of two regiments and was informed that his aim was going to be the capture of the French fort at Niagara, thus giving the British control over Lake Ontario. Braddock himself was going to leave immediately upon the arrival of his men and march into the Ohio country. The plan was to follow the path that Washington had formed the year before. Braddock would lead a direct assault on Fort Duquesne. Upon taking the fort, he would head north following the Allegheny and taking care of French forts as he came upon them. The plan was that Braddock would then link up with Shirley at Lake Ontario for the push into Canada itself. Braddock then further expected that William Johnson, who, by the way, also did not have any military experience, would form an army made up of provincials and Indians, who would then proceed to march to New York, where they would assault Fort St. Frederick at Crown Point. The final piece of Braddock's plan was an expedition to remove French forts from the Chignicto Ismith in Nova Scotia. 
Okay, so clearly there is absolutely nothing simple about this plan. Making matters so much worse, however, is the resources that the colonists themselves were going to need to supply. The most obvious necessity was going to come in the form of manpower. As we have discussed before, the British were well aware of the huge cost and difficulty that came along with shipping huge numbers of troops across the Atlantic for the purpose of fighting the war. This is to say nothing of the distinct reality that conflict in Europe likely was also looming, and the British did not want to send all of their soldiers half a world away. This effort was going to rely on provincial soldiers to carry much of the fight. We know that the hope was that it would take around 2,000 colonists to handle eliminating the French forts from Chignecto. The expedition to take Crown Point was going to see Johnson leading an additional 4,400 colonial soldiers from New York and New England. This is to say nothing of the men required for either Shirley's or Braddock's expedition. Braddock was also going to require money, which he expected each colony to contribute to. This, again, however, was rebuffed. As we have already seen as recently as our last episode, there was a lack of intercolonial assistance rolling in. None of the colonies wanted to dip into their coffers in order to help out the other colonies, who were their competitors. In Pennsylvania, things became even more complicated as the Quaker leadership fell back on the fact that they were pacifists and said thanks, but no thanks. Braddock was, unsurprisingly, not amused. Further complicating matters was the fact that the colonial governors were all gunning for their own personal success. If that success came from the failure of a rival, well, hey, that's all the better. Therefore, the governors of the colonies, rather than working for the greater good, were often working out of their own personal self-interest. The war, rather than bringing factions together, gave the colonies openings for increasing their own power to the detriment of their neighbors. Problems here would emerge largely between the Johnson and Shirley expeditions. Johnson was a close friend of New York Governor James DeLancey. DeLancey was eager to deliver a blow to New England, and the war provided just such an opportunity. For DeLancey, the name of the game would become helping Johnson, while at the same time trying to stymie Shirley. Braddock's plan was also exceptionally taxing on the limited colonial resources. Getting this many men on board for an expedition was always going to be a monumental, if not outright impossible, task. However, with so many expeditions and the colonies largely competing for limited resources, it became that much more difficult. There was likewise the reality of the standard war profiteering that was bound to pop up. Merchants were not going to miss a chance to drive up their prices for supplies in order to make a quick profit over a war with France. Braddock, clearly believing that he knew better, would prove to be his own worst enemy. His inflexibility meant that he was unwilling to consider suggestions from the colonial governors, men who would have had much more of a realistic idea of the conditions on the ground. They designed the planned attacks back in London, looking at maps. However, they lacked the local knowledge of the land that the colonial governors possessed. When those same governors attempted to provide this critical information to Braddock, he simply rebuffed them. Most critically for our episode today, and for Braddock himself, both Shirley and Johnson told him to forget about Fort Duquesne and instead focus on Fort Niagara. 
the thought process was twofold. On the one hand, Braddock was relying upon that road that Washington had traveled back in 1754. The problem, though, is that using the word road is far too generous. Washington's road was much more of a small footpath. Braddock's plan to move large numbers of troops, artillery, and baggage along the road were infeasible, unless Braddock made efforts to improve the road first. A timely activity for a man who seems to have lacked patience. The second and more strategic reason for ignoring Fort Duquesne in exchange for Niagara was that Niagara was a French choke point. Should the British gain control over Niagara, they would cut off the French ability to reinforce their forts to the south. With the French supply lines cut, it would have meant that those forts in the Ohio country would have suddenly become far more vulnerable. Despite this, Braddock had his orders that Fort Duquesne was the objective, and he was determined to follow orders, regardless of the strategic arguments that were there for a far superior target. On the eve of Braddock's march, we are left with a situation where Braddock was dealing with typical colonial bickering and undercutting. Rather than a united front that was ready to go out and defeat the French, those that Braddock was relying upon often had their own political and economic agendas to fulfill. Beating the French was nice, but also getting a chance to make your own star shine brighter to the detriment of your neighbor? Well, that was even better. This combined with such a cumbersome set of war plans meant that the colonies were always going to be stretched thin as they struggled to provide the materials and manpower for war. Finally, Braddock's own inflexibility meant that when the colonial officials pointed out the flaws in his plans, he was simply unwilling to consider alternative actions. We are going to talk about all the various missions that we just outlined here. However, for today, this episode is all about Edward Braddock and his march on Fort Duquesne. We will catch up with everybody else later on, but for now, let's focus on Braddock's march. Edward Braddock, despite warnings from his now second-in-command William Shirley, was determined to go through with his planned assault on Fort Duquesne. However, Braddock, determined as he was to follow through with his plans, would continue to make some questionable decisions on just how he was going to go about things. Braddock would set up in Wills Creek, which he renamed Cumberland in Maryland. There he ordered the construction of a fort in order to better protect the Ohio Company's holdings along the Potomac. Realizing that he needed some better intelligence, Braddock turned to George Krogan. We first met George Krogan a few weeks back when we saw him join up with Christopher Gist and Tanner Grisson at Logstown for that all-important meeting. What Krogan had in mind was a meeting at the new Fort Cumberland with the Ohio tribes. In order to organize such a conference, Krogan turned to the followers of Tanner Grisson. As for Tanner Grisson himself, his story unceremoniously ended the previous October. Following the events of Jumonville Glen and then Fort Necessity, Tanagrisson and his tribe moved to a plantation owned by Krogan. It was there that Tanagrisson became ill and died on October 4, 1754. An alliance between the Indians living in the Ohio country and the British was a logical choice. Well, you had plenty of tribes like the Delaware and the Shawnee that were not huge fans of the Iroquois, 
the influx of natives from Canada presented its own problems. Their flood into the region had disrupted the self-rule that these groups were so desperately trying to cling to. What made everything so difficult for the Ohio tribes, however, is that they were all well aware of the risks that came along with being too closely aligned with the British. The Ohio tribes specifically wanted no permanent European settlements in the Ohio. It is not surprising that Braddock was quick to dismiss this request and made clear that the British would take control over the land. For the tribes meeting Braddock at Fort Cumberland that spring, this actually was not a deal breaker. These tribes were desperate to get rid of the French-aligned Indians, and even without these concessions, the tribes were still open to negotiations. This should really underscore the desperation of the Ohio tribes to get rid of the French and their allies. Having these Canadian tribes settling in the Ohio was an existential threat to their way of life and their future in the region. The tribes likewise understood that the only way that they were going to get the French out of the Ohio was with the help of the British. Their initial offer rebuffed, the tribes quickly pivoted to Plan B. The tribes requested from Braddock a guarantee that the British would agree that when the war was over to allow the tribes to live together with the British in the region. As long as the tribes had a guarantee from Braddock that they would not be forced out of the Ohio and that they would be given enough hunting ground to support their families, they were still on board. For the tribes, this is clearly a massive concession. Their decision to even make such an offer shows that they were very aware of just how much they needed British involvement in the Ohio. Unfortunately, Braddock seems to have been completely oblivious to just how much he needed the Ohio tribes. The tribes here were being completely earnest in their attempts to forge a partnership with the British. Upon arrival at the conference, a representative of the Mohawk brought with him a complete set of plans to Fort Duquesne. Braddock, however, made his position abundantly clear. They would not be inheriting the lands. Any of the land. So this went over about as well as you probably all imagine it did. Sure, the Ohio tribes desperately needed the British to help. However, Braddock was simply not willing to play ball, not even a little. It is interesting to note that Braddock does not even pay lip service here. He could have probably gotten away at this point by muttering a quiet acceptance that the British would not flat out purge the native populations from the region. And that would have been enough. But for Braddock, even that was more than he was willing to give. For the tribes, this was an obviously devastating blow. However, regardless of how much they needed the British to help them, what would have even been the point in fighting? Dejected, all but Skirwadi, chief of the Oneida tribe, left and went home. By the time that Braddock left Cumberland on May 29th, there were only eight Indians with him. Problematically, Braddock still thought that he had some support coming from other tribes. He fully believed that by this point, William Johnson was hard at work getting an agreement in place for an alliance with the Iroquois. However, when Braddock left Fort Cumberland, these negotiations had yet to even begin. Furthermore, Governor Dinwiddie had, for some reason, decided that he could bring some 400 Catawabas and Cherokee into the fight. Considering that the Cherokee and the Catawabas 
hated the Iroquois, this was an alliance that was never really going to materialize. Well, certainly possible that Braddock thought the tribes he had met with were inconsequential due to aid from other tribes, his lack of any recognizable diplomatic ability still appears naive at best and reckless at worst. What Braddock had when he left Fort Cumberland was some 2,200 men. Accompanying the group was a somewhat rehabilitated George Washington. When we had last left Washington, we had seen him accidentally leading a party that killed a French emissary. Then we saw him get pinned down at Fort Necessity, where a full third of his army was killed, and then finally signing a treaty where he admitted responsibility for the assassination of that same French emissary. Overall, it had been a really rough couple of months for the future president. The question therefore becomes, exactly how did Washington rehabilitate his image after such a devastating 1754? Then, as is the case now, whenever there is a disaster of any kind, finger-pointing follows closely behind. Initially, those fingers pointed directly towards Washington. However, there is a problem with that. This is not the American Revolution. George Washington isn't the general overseeing the entire war. Rather, George Washington was just some 22-year-old kid who had no experience and suddenly found himself in way over his head. In the world of finger-pointing, Washington isn't exactly a satisfying person to point the finger at just yet. Unsurprisingly, therefore, the finger turned towards the Virginia legislature and their governor, Robert Dinwiddie. Despite some initial attempts to blame Washington for the debacle, Dinwiddie was trapped. Should he blame Washington for everything that happened, his own leadership would come into question. After all, he is the one who appointed Washington in the first place. Therefore, likely out of self-preservation more than anything else, the blame being directed towards Washington was muted. Rather, the stories that really shot to the top were of his utter and complete bravery and his dedication to following orders. Fort Necessity was always going to be a disaster, but Washington remained in control. There was no attempt to flee, no evidence that he ever considered backing down. The entire affair was quickly turned from being a crushing defeat into a heroic stand against impossible odds. Braddock recognized that Washington would be a valuable addition heading into the frontier. He had planned to follow the original road that Washington himself had made a year prior. Washington, therefore, would have had a better understanding of the terrain than nearly anybody. Not wanting to take a demotion in order to serve under Braddock, and Edward Braddock realizing that this would not have worked out, Washington was made an aide-de-camp. Washington likely viewed the experience aspect of such a mission as important, and furthermore would have recognized that through the course of the campaign, Braddock would be awarding commissions as necessary. As an aide-de-camp, one of those commissions would have almost certainly eventually belonged to Washington. If there is any one thing that a person can say about Edward Braddock, it must be that patience was not a virtue that he had. With his training and, albeit little experience, Braddock was firmly entrenched in the idea that a war in the colonies was going to be something resembling the warfare common in Europe. However, as we have discussed before on this podcast, the reality of fighting against Indian warriors 
meant a general avoidance of open-pitched battles. The Indians were always well aware of the fact that, in open battle, they were going to be massacred. The goal was always, therefore, ambush-style attacks. Quick hit-and-run tactics where you could get in, cause some damage and havoc, and then get out of dodge before the colonists can figure out what happened. It was not as though Braddock was unaware of this either. He had been warned. Braddock refused any advice that he was given from what he viewed as inferior provincials. Benjamin Franklin had personally warned Braddock to watch out for Indian ambushes, to which Braddock just brushed him off, letting Franklin know that well Indians might be a problem for provincial soldiers, they would make no impact on the well-trained British regulars. Likely also worried about being ambushed, Washington warned Braddock against trying to drag the artillery and baggage train through the mountains, and suggested that they cross using packhorses instead, a suggestion that Braddock again ignored. Braddock made abundantly clear to everybody that he had no intention of changing his fighting style to better match his enemies. The road from Fort Cumberland to Fort Duquesne was not a well-tended path. It was narrow and rocky with steep hills and cliffs, and it was difficult to traverse. Braddock was not traveling lightly either. He had some 2,200 men at his disposal, though a complete lack of Native American scouts that could have likely provided him with crucial insights into the journey. In addition, he was pulling along several artillery pieces and a large baggage train. Slowing them down more was the fact that in order to move the artillery and baggage trains, Braddock was forced to do roadwork to both widen and improve the path. This was a time-consuming and laborious task that Braddock felt little inclination to indulge. In defense of Braddock, he was concerned about the slow travel. He had intelligence that French reinforcements were on their way and believed that it was critical to take Fort Duquesne before reinforcements arrived. Eager to speed things along and tired of being slowed down by the baggage and artillery, Braddock decided that he was going to speed things up a bit. He broke his army into two columns. The first column, composed of some 1,300 men, was known as the Flying Column. The Flying Column was to surge ahead, while the secondary column, led by Thomas Dunbar, brought up the rear carrying the cannons and the baggage. On its face, this ended up working very well. The Flying Column surged ahead of the baggage, as they were no longer encumbered by the poor trails and paths. Ultimately, the flying column would end up 60 miles ahead of the remaining thousand men carrying the artillery. There were a few small skirmishes with Native Americans along the march, but mostly Braddock made excellent time. The flying column advanced with order and discipline. The very front of the column was busy scouting out the path, and this included those few Indian guides who had come along, as well as George Krogan. They were under the immediate command of Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage. Right behind them was another 250 men who were working on road improvements to allow the few wagons that came along with the flying column to progress quickly. This group, a company of men from New York, was under the command of Horatio Gates. Just a heads up, you should keep those names handy. Both Thomas Gage and Horatio Gates are going to play important roles later in our story. Behind these two groups were those wagons, followed by the main bulk of the infantry, 
walking in parallel lines flanking the wagons. This is the group that included Braddock and his aides. There was a final rear guard with around 100 men in it. With everything going exceptionally well, the group crossed the Monongahela River on July 9th, 1755, just a few miles to the southeast of Fort Duquesne. Braddock was feeling pretty good upon crossing, believing that the French may have simply abandoned the fort rather than facing the looming British army. The problem for Braddock is that the French had in fact not abandoned Fort Duquesne. The fort was now under the command of Pecadie de Contracoup. Contracoup had been alerted by a scout of a rapidly approaching British army, something which was causing him a great amount of concern. For Contracoup, he likewise had a couple of major problems. While he commanded around 1,600 troops, a mixture of French regulars, Indians, and militia, the fort was hardly large enough to hold 200 men, meaning that the rest would be exposed outside. He worried about the Indian fighting style as well. The Native Americans that were fighting with the French were brave to be sure. However, he had serious concerns that should the fight begin to go against him, they would promptly get out of Dodge. Those Indians fighting with the French were not suicidal and had little interest in dying in order to hold the fort. Should things therefore go in a bad direction and the Indians decided that there was nothing in it left to win, it could leave the remaining forces seriously outnumbered by Braddock's advance. The plan, therefore, for Contrecoup was to slow the British down. To accomplish this, he sent out around 800 men under the command of Daniel Leonard de Beaujou to harass Braddock's forces. At roughly one o'clock in the afternoon, the French force crashed into the British force, quite literally. Krogan had spotted the French some 200 yards out. The French, just as surprised as the British were, came to a hard stop and attempted to form ranks. Thomas Gage ordered his men to open fire and actually scored a huge initial victory as Beaujou himself was killed in the initial volley. Unfortunately for the British, however, this really was the high point of the day. Following the death of Beaujou, the Indians quickly broke ranks and moved on to Braddock's flanks. The right flank specifically featured a hill, meaning that the Indians were now on elevated ground, with good cover, attacking the exposed British line. The British regulars stayed and attempted to fight, but had little success in hitting much of anything. The specific land where the battle was being waged was an Indian hunting ground. This meant a couple of things. Importantly, it meant that much of the brush had been cleared in order to allow Indian hunters to move quickly and reduce the amount of places for game to hide. Now, however, it also meant that the British column was exceptionally prone with nowhere to seek cover. Whereas the Indians remained mobile and elusive, the British resorted to what their training had taught them. Rather than quickly trying to adapt to the moment, they kept trying to form ranks. All this did was help concentrate the British troops for the Indian marksmen. Braddock, knowing that standing still meant death, ordered his men forward. Despite the orders from Braddock, a bunch of non-regulars who had been up towards the front of the column decided that this was far enough. They turned and attempted to race back towards the rear. 
These men, in their defense, were often not actually soldiers, but were the equivalent of contractors, brought along to help with the non-fighting aspects of the advance. This included men who were doing things like fixing the roads. Regardless of who they were, however, their move towards the rear created a situation where you have regulars moving in one direction directly into a large number of men going the opposite direction. This did little but introduce more confusion into an already chaotic situation. Keep in mind that this entire time while the British are trying to figure out what is going on and what they should do next, they remained completely exposed and the Indians just kept attacking. Despite his best efforts, by this point the confusion was all becoming too much and Braddock was rapidly losing the ability to organize his men. Now, there was simply a confused, unorganized mass of men trying to do anything they could not to be slaughtered. The British had no proper sense of where the enemy was, because the enemy was everywhere. They were pinned down, exposed, along a path that gave them very little room for movement. For the Indians, they made for easy targets. One of the survivors that day would write that you hardly saw anybody that day, and groups of more than six were a strange sight. The enemy was nearly invisible. Ironically, many of the Americans lacked the discipline that the British regulars had and dove to hide in trees for cover. While this sounds like an understandable and logical move, the British began mistaking the Americans as the enemy and subsequently opened fire on them. Although the British were being cut down and were completely ineffective at hitting much of anything, they adhered to discipline and remained in their formations. They might not be organized properly, but they were still standing there, exposed, fighting as though they would have been back in Europe. Braddock, for his part, appears to have completely kept his composure through all of this as well. He was busy moving up and down the lines trying to form some kind of coordinated response. At no point did he decide to sound the retreat, and the British regulars under his command remained disciplined. They stood, and they fought. That is, right up until the moment that Edward Braddock was shot in the back and was mortally wounded. Everybody who was still alive decided that this was as good of a time as any to pull back. What followed was a hellish retreat as the Indians emerged from the trees and attacked with hatchets. When the smoke cleared and the battle ended, the outcome was stunning. Braddock's flying column had been annihilated. Over two-thirds of the men and women were wounded or dead. And I want to mention on that note that there were roughly 50 women along for the march. These women, referred to as camp followers, could range from the wives of the men to merchants selling things that the army could not provide and occasionally providing more sordid types of services. Of these women, around half were killed, with the rest being captured. The flying column was so far ahead of the rest of the army that there was little hope of being helped. French losses numbered 23 dead, with another 16 injured. It was as much of a rout as one could imagine. Braddock, despite having been shot, did not die immediately, but lingered on in pain. George Washington, having survived the battle remarkably unscathed, despite having horses shot out from under him and bullet holes in his clothing, attended to the injured Braddock. Braddock would die 
and would be buried near where Joinville had died a little over a year earlier. When the remnants of Braddock's flying column reconnected with Dunbar, the British numbers were still formidable, with about 1,300 total men ready to fight. Dunbar had enough men that had he chosen to move forward, he could have carried out the original plan. However, stunned by the devastation that he was seeing, Dunbar could do little more than turn the army around and head away from Fort Duquesne. As it is, this serves as something of an ironic twist to the entire battle. Following the victory at Fort Duquesne, many of the Ottawa warriors collected their loot and went home. Had Dunbar marched on Fort Duquesne, he would have faced little resistance and likely captured the fort with relative ease. Instead, the remnants of Braddock's army made their way for Philadelphia, while the surviving Virginians splintered off and returned to Fort Cumberland. Upon their return to Cumberland, Dinwiddie reconstituted the Virginia Regiment and gave command to the still young, but now significantly more battle-hardened, George Washington. Braddock's second-in-command, William Shirley, was now in charge of the war effort. Braddock's march was a disaster. There is simply no way to sugarcoat it. It is often considered to be one of the single biggest losses during 18th century warfare. So, the question that I want to finish on for today is what exactly happened on that July day along the banks of the Monongahela River? How were the British regulars defeated so thoroughly and what is the lasting legacy of Braddock's failed expedition? Braddock's defeat was a stunning turn of events for a couple of reasons. Braddock's army was the largest British regular army to ever come into North America, up until that point at least. And just like that, they were absolutely slaughtered. Braddock just weeks before had talked down to Benjamin Franklin on the matter, telling him that maybe the provincials would have trouble with the Indians but certainly not the British army. It is likewise impossible to ignore the fact that Braddock was ridiculously stubborn in his planning. Even as his men were being cut down, Braddock's primary goal was to get the men to revert to their training and form back up. While maintaining discipline is obviously important during a battle, rigid adherence to a losing strategy was not going to help anybody. However, while technically there were certainly some criticisms to make, one must also focus on the mistakes made at Fort Cumberland a few months earlier. Had Braddock at least paid a minimal amount of lip service to the Indians that he had met with, it is certainly possible that he would have had a group of advanced scouts with him. Advanced scouts that would have better understood the tactics being used against the British and better understood methods whereby they could counter them. Beyond that, however, Braddock was not the only British officer to fail that day. Leading the advanced troops, Gage had failed to secure a key hill before pushing forward. When the firefight began, Gage quickly retreated. Had Gage pushed forward and directly engaged the French to begin the battle, he might have been able to break through their lines following the death of their commanding officer. Likewise, had he just stood his ground and fought, it may have bought the rest of the British soldiers critical time to reinforce him. Rather, Gage and his men made for a hasty retreat. Braddock had few options by the time the battle had begun. 
Yes, it is easy to criticize Braddock for attempting to get his men to form ranks and then blast blind volleys into the woods. However, it is not necessarily correct to assume that, had the British broken ranks and rushed into the woods to fight the Indians in individual combat, things would have gone much better. The British were always at a disadvantage. The Indian warriors knew the land better and were more prepared for the realities of frontier fighting. Braddock was overly rigid, but that isn't to say that he totally blew off the warnings of potential ambush either. Yet, Braddock was overly brash and, frankly, insulting to the provincials, but he was still making sure to send advance guards out to, hopefully, limit the damage from an ambush. Thomas Gage was, after all, leading the front of the column to protect from that very thing. There were also questions over the planning of the mission. The road that Braddock had followed was longer than expected and was rough to traverse. This meant that when the ambush began, the combined French and Indian forces were well-rested, fighting against a worn-down and tired British army. The ultimate failure for Braddock, however, was not anything that happened along the banks of the Monongahela River. The major mistake by Braddock was made before he left Cumberland. His failure at diplomacy to secure the help of the Ohio tribes would prove costly. For Braddock, the mistake cost him his life. The events of Braddock's march made abundantly clear that the colonists and the British were going to need to do something different moving forward. The most immediate effect of the loss was that the frontier of Virginia and Pennsylvania was now dangerously exposed. Indeed, they would have to endure months of devastating Indian raids that would send settlers along those western frontiers fleeing back towards the east. The Indians would largely use those improved roads that Braddock himself had created during his march to lead their attacks. This sudden flood of people from the west pouring to the east created something of a minor humanitarian crisis, as suddenly the eastern counties were flooded with refugees. To wrap up for today, let's consider the long-term effects of Braddock's march. The battle would produce many of the most prominent leaders during the American Revolution. Obviously, George Washington would emerge from the march as a major name in the colonies. We are going to see Horatio Gates, a man that would often have a tense relationship with Washington, emerge as one of the military leaders for the Americans as well. Thomas Gage is going to be sticking around throughout this war, and then all the way out until the American Revolution. He is going to be the governor of Massachusetts, as well as the initial military commander for British forces against the American rebels. Other key players such as Charles Lee and Daniel Morgan were along on Braddock's march. Finally, we need to consider the effect of Braddock's march on George Washington himself. While the finger pointing at Braddock was pretty epic, Washington came away as something of a hero. He had shown incredible bravery and resolve. He likewise showed a strange ability not to get shot, which, hey, that's always good. Washington would report that he had found four bullet holes in his clothing and that he had had two horses shot out from under him. Any lingering concerns regarding Washington from the Jumonville affair and Fort Necessity were promptly forgotten. Through this ordeal, the colonists suddenly learned some hard truths about the British. They were not invincible. They could be defeated. Now, during 1775, there was nobody seriously thinking about independence. But some 20 years later, the memories of Braddock's defeat was something that the colonists would remember. 
Washington also took with him mental notes of just how the British could be defeated. At the end of the day, the loss by Braddock was crushing in the moment. However, long-term, it had some major consequences for the colonies. The mystique of the British regular was permanently stained. The star of George Washington was beginning to glow brighter. So many of these long-term effects are indeed just that, things that are going to be coming in the future. In 1755, nobody knew what was to come over the next 21 years. The immediate effect was that the Virginia and Pennsylvania frontiers were now exposed to attack. The British Army in Virginia had been dealt a crushing defeat. There was still a war to fight, a war that had gotten off to a pretty terrible start for the British. Next time, we are going to join up with William Shirley, who had just become the commanding British officer in North America. Braddock was just one part of a complicated four-pronged attack, an attack that was still going to move forward. When we return in two weeks, we are going to check in with those other phases of the war and see if it is going better for them than it was for Edward Braddock. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time to pick up with the missions in the North.